Jewish Audio on Kabbat.org. This part is presented by Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, spiritual leader at Chabad Flamingo in Thornhill, Ontario. Right, chapter 4. We are in the middle of Mishnah number 2. So we started Mishnah 2 last time. And now we are Mitzchem going to finish that Mishnah and hopefully go forward. The Mishnah is a teaching that's attributed to the famous sage Ben Azai. And as I mentioned previously, Ben Azai's name was actually Shimon, but for numerous reasons, he's not referred to as Rabbi Shimon, but simply as Ben Azai. One of the outstanding reasons is that Ben Azai was a person who didn't live a very grounded life. He was a, a very humble person. He never wanted to accept any formal position. He always preferred to serve as a student. Although Ben Azai was one of the great sages who everybody flocked to where he lived in Tiberias. Ben Azai also died at a young age. The Gemara tells us a very strange story about Arba Nichnesulopardis, four great sages who entered into a mystical garden of Torah. Please do not try to understand it because I don't know what it means either. But it's some kind of space, not a physical space, that people can go and they happens, Rashi says, Shame by saying the, in the ineffable name of God. So a person is actually able to transport himself into some kind of spiritual reality. And there were four sages who did that. And only Rabbi Akiva returned to tell the tale. Then Azayah says, Hitzitz umes. He glanced, or he looked, he gazed intensely, and then he expired. And the Chassidus explains that his neshama was so overwhelmed by the holiness that he saw that his neshama simply lifted away from his physical existence. Just use the example of a candle. So if you ever look at it carefully, you'll see that the flame constantly moves upward. But before it leaps off the wick, it comes back for some more air. It comes back for more fuel. And eventually when there's no fuel, then the, the flame disappears. The flame actually leaps off the wick and it's finished. So a neshama is very much like that. As it says, Nei Hashem Nishma Sodom. That the candle of God is the soul of man. So a human being has a soul. A soul that constantly flickers. Do you know anybody who is always in the same mood? I don't know anybody in the same mood. It doesn't even have to do with hormones. It's just a human thing. People are always up and down. That's human nature. So why is this so? Because live things are in a state of flux. Only dead things stay the same, the same way. A statue doesn't change. The marble statue is still smiling at you. For the last four centuries he's smiling and he'll smile for another four centuries. It doesn't change. The person, sometimes the person smiles, sometimes the person frowns, sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry. That's, that's it's human nature. Why? Because our neshama is full of life and our neshama is in a state of flux. The neshama is going up and the neshama is going down. The neshama sometimes yearns. We yearn for things that are beyond our normative existence. Sometimes we want to get away from home. Sometimes we want to go on vacation. Sometimes we want to look for something that's new and exciting. And then when we go to that place, what do we often feel? Homesick. We just want to come home, sweet home. There are times when the urge or the pull of home is stronger. There are times when the allure or the pull of something distant is stronger. You know, interestingly, there was one company whose stock soared after 9-11. you know which company that was? <laughs> Insurance companies, their prices went up. I don't know if their stock soared. There's one company whose stock soared. Everybody else's stocks plummeted. One company's stock soared in the, in the weeks and months that, that were followed. Let me put it differently. Which industry went down more than any other after 9-11? Travel. Travel went down. People were afraid to go anywhere. 
So which industry went up? Home improvement. Home Depot went through the roof. Why? Because everybody just wanted to improve their own little circle. Everybody wanted to stay tethered. The interesting thing about human nature, there are times when we look to go home, and times when home seems so boring and homely, and we need to go somewhere else. This is true even in a physical, in a literal way. But everything in the physical, or everything in the, in the tangible world, is but a mirror of phenomenon that takes place in the spiritual world. So, in the spiritual world of souls, the same thing happens. Because sometimes a soul feels a pull, a soul feels a drive. Sometimes we're looking for more than the pedestrian, mundane life that we lead. We want something spiritual, something with pizzazz, something that can lift us out of the boredom, the monotony of everyday existence. And other times, just want peace and quiet. We just want surrender. We just want what we're used to. We'll reach for the familiar. So the Neshama experiences this on a regular basis, like a candle. It moves forward. It's looking for an outer body experience. It's looking for something which is unusual, something different, something dynamic and exciting. And then the Neshama has to come back to get some air. How does he get air? With monotony. Boring everyday mitzvahs. Like you daven in the morning. Like you make a bracha before you eat. It doesn't seem incredibly spiritual. It's not something you can write a book about. It's not you can't tell a great story. What did I do today? Well, today I got up and I came to a Torah class. Really, is it new? No, it's not new. It went for five years. Oh, was it exciting? Whatever it was. Something I do. People always get excited about new things. But the, the real test lies in endurance. Do you continue? Startups are very easy. Startups come and go. question is, does a company have a track record? How long are you performing for? Yes, there are going to be downs. Ups and downs. But the bottom line is, there's endurance. There's the ability of continuity. So when we talk about the neshama, the neshama experiences both. It's very important to have a balance. You need to have spiritual pizzazz. You need to have excitement. You need to have a Yom Kippur. You need to have a Simchas Torah. You need to have a Hanukkah. That's the idea of a holiday. But Jews only celebrate holidays and don't celebrate the Judaism in between the holidays. That's not a lasting Judaism. Because they're only looking for the excitement. They're only looking for, for the, the fireworks of Judaism. The fireworks of Judaism can only be properly experienced and appreciated if the fireworks of Judaism are accompanied with the bread and butter of Judaism which is everyday observance, everyday commitment, regular involvement, and so on and so forth. Benazai represented a person who got too intense. He went into this mystical, magical world called Pardus, not to be confused with Harry Potter, something real. This is a, something that ordinary people like ourselves don't know about. And he became too engrossed, too involved, and he got swept up in holiness swept up in the allure, the excitement of a spiritual experience that was beyond normative everyday life and he couldn't return. He went to a point of no return so his neshama separated from his body. There are numerous instances in Torah of great tzaddikim, righteous individuals who experience things like this. Perhaps the most famous is the sons of Aaron. We read in the Chumash that they died when they drew close to God. So they came too, too close and they didn't have balance. Only Rabbi Akiva had the ability to balance. And because he could balance everything, he could experience a lofty spiritual revelation, but he'd still be able to return to a normative, everyday commitment of Judaism. At any rate, what you see from Benazai is that he represents, if you could use one word for Benazai, what would that be? What do you think? One word for Benazai, what would it be? based on what I have told you. Committed? Why committed? 
Why committed? Everybody's committed to what they're doing. You're not committed to what you're doing? What are you doing? <laughs> you're not committed to some of the things you're doing. Everybody's committed to something. <laughs> excessive. Okay, that's a good word. Excessive, you could say. He was excessively committed. <laughs> Over-focused. Super hyper-focused. Super-focused. Fanatical. Fanatic. But, but that's negative. Let's put a more positive spin on it. He, he he's, was certainly hyper-focused on a particular path. So what path was that? What kind of spirituality? Mysticism or a rush forward. He was a person, exuberance, excitement, right? He was committed to this excitement. His, his soul crackled with intensity. And because of that, he expired. How do you say that in Hebrew? To rush forward. It's such an easy word, you're going to say, oh... Why did you say so? Larutz. Excellent. Larutz means to run. Rutz. But rutz means to run. But it doesn't mean to run. Just like people run for office. They actually run. It's a state of being. They become zombies for 20 hours a day. For six weeks, all they do is try to get votes. And then they go on vacation and crash for three weeks. They win or lose. I mean, it's, it's a very intense thing. It takes over your whole life. The people like this candidates who, are tr- who try to win office, they have no family life, they have no career, they have no personal life, they have nothing. All that becomes a singular focus. If you want to get elected, that has to become the be-all and end-all of your life. You, could, you can bet your bottom dollar that anybody from Obama to Giuliani is not thinking of anything else right now other than, how do I get the coveted White House? How do I get there? And that becomes everything. So we call it running for office. It's a very apt way to describe something that consumes your whole being. Benazah was consumed. He was consumed with holiness, with spirituality, with excitement, with exuberance. He was, he was crackling with excitement at every mitzvah. So what is his teaching? What does he say to you? How should you regard mitzvahs? Now you can look at the Mishnah. What does he say? Benazah Yehmer. Hevei Rots. Mishnah number two. Havei Ratz Ludvar Mitzvah You should run to a Mitzvah and as we explained last time we were studying together Ratz doesn't mean physically running because he says for a Mitzvah Kala even for a light Mitzvah and the Gemara lists a number of light Mitzvahs and they're not things you have to run for Mitzvah of Sukkah you don't run to your Sukkah you sit in your Sukkah you can run to Shul but that doesn't say you should run to Shul it says you should run to the Mitzvah of Sukkah it says the Mitzvah of Taking away, you're sending away the mother bird before you take away the eggs. Is a mitzvah you have to run to. It's not a mitzvah you run to. It says ki when you encounter. So it's not something you run for. It's something you encounter. When you encounter it, then you should do X, Y, and Z. So it's not something you ran for, but something that kind of came across your path. So what does it mean? Ruts. It's it's a state of being. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a frame of mind to exist within where you, where you look for a mitzvah. Where a mitzvah is something that excites you. It's something that catches your attention. That's not so usual. Most of the times people hear about a mitzvah, they, they groan. Hey, hey, another mitzvah. Another, another, another obligation. What did it want from me today? I did enough already. Leave me alone. I paid my dues. Okay, call me in six months. We don't usually run after mitzvahs. We don't get excited by mitzvahs, especially if they're little mitzvahs. The big mitzvahs, okay. The little mitzvahs too. And now they says a Jew's life has to be characterized by excitement and exuberance for the mitzvahs. Avedot for mitzvah. 
And then we talked about this last week. I want to go on to the next half of the Mishnah, the reason for this. He gives two reasons, it seems. She mitzvah, mitzvah, because one mitzvah causes another mitzvah, or brings another in its train. Va'aveda, you're supposed to run the other way from an Aveda, run towards a mitzvah and run away from an Aveda. Why? Aveda gereres Aveda. One sin brings another in its train. One sin causes another sin. Then the Mishnah says, Sheshar mitzvah, mitzvah, because the reward of a mitzvah is a mitzvah. Sheshar Aveda, the remuneration of a sin, Aveda is a sin. So this, of course, needs to be understood. Let us first take it from the top in a very literal way. Mitzvah, gereres, mitzvah. One mitzvah causes another mitzvah. What does that mean? What does that mean, one mitzvah causes another mitzvah? One of the most important notions in Torah philosophy, and for that matter, in any religious credo, is something called Bechira Chavshis, or freedom of choice. So if there is no freedom of choice, then there is no righteousness, and there are no sins. Then you have robots. You have computers. Could you be angry at the computer for making a mistake? Can you fault a computer? Should you fire your computer? How could you? He's just a machine. You could be angry at the programmer. You can't be angry at the computer. If something doesn't have the ability to think and to choose, then they can't get punished, but they also can't get credit. Are you going to reward the computer? Oh, such a good computer. I'm going to give you an extra special download today. What makes people unique? What makes people special? Rhyme and reason. Our ability to look at things, to evaluate and to choose. There is no other creation in the universe that has what we call freedom of choice. Everything else is either beneath us or above us. Beneath us we have vegetative life, animal life, and above us we have angelic life. The animals are creatures of instinct. They react instinctively to certain situations. Animals can be very passionate. Animals can be full of life, full of exuberance. They may have more exuberance in life than even a human being. But the animal cannot really be trained to think. The animal's cognition goes as far as, here's my instinct. And I learn now that if I do whatever particular act it is, I'm going to get a certain reward. So again, the instinct kicks in. What makes the dolphin jump up and down in the sea world? Because the dolphin knows he's going to get more tuna fish to eat. He learned. That you can teach him. But to explain to him the virtues of tuna fish, or the virtue of not tuna fish, and why it's a nice thing to make people cheer, and it will be an appropriate thing to entertain others, and to share the joy of his life, (laughs) it's impossible. Animals don't have intelligence like that. Plants have some kind of intelligence. We know that plant life is intelligence. There are numerous studies that prove it today. But the plant life of, or the intelligence of, of, of vegetative life is not cognitive intelligence. It's not choices they make. It's, it's an it's a instinctual thing. Where they plant two plants and a planter from the same mother tree and those plants gravitate together. And they isolate the other plants, the other shoots. They stay away from each other. It's not a choice they make. Animals don't make choices. The notion that you have to reward a dog for being good is patently ridiculous. The dog understands that he was good and therefore he got rewarded. The dog, it's only instinct. You can train a dog to follow 
The dog's instincts, the dog knows that if I do this, something is going to happen. Why it's really a good thing or why it's a bad thing is absolutely irrelevant to the dog. The seeing dog and the attack dog are not any nicer or, or evil. They're exactly the same. One was trained to help somebody see, to help somebody get around. It's an instinct. It's not, it's not the dog didn't say, okay, I think I should have him see this nefesh now. I think I should risk my life because I understand the virtue of my masters. It's not going to happen that way. A person made a decision like that. A person could risk, risk their life to save your family, you should be eternally indebted to. But the notion that dog's a good dog or a bad dog is ridiculous. There are only bad owners and good owners. You can't be bad dogs. People like to have relationships with dogs because there's no strings attached. The dog is no two-way, you don't have to bend yourself out of shape. You don't really have to worry about how the dog feels or not. The dog is, is just a loving creature, a furry creature. He comes and he cuddles up with you. So it's easy. It's an easy relationship. But you cannot say it's as rewarding a relationship because reward comes in accordance with the effort that you put in. A lot of people opt easy way out today. They have no time for relationships. They're so busy. They need a little love in their life. So they buy a dog. I think it's a sad commentary on what people have become. It used to be that dogs were functional companions. The shepherd had a dog. The, 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 uh, the, the guard had a dog. The, the police had a dog. People had dogs because they needed to have dogs. Today, people buy a dog for friendship. There's really a problem with it. At least I have a problem with it. I think Torah would too. I think Torah has a problem with people who, who opt out of a human relationship instead of trying to develop a relationship with people have a, they go the easy route. You know, the path of less resistance. What's, what's you know, argue with the dog? The dog is going to leave his socks around. You can't get angry at the dog. The dog is just a dog. So he made on the floor. What are you going to do? He's a dog. There's no question. I, did, I said, that's, that's a functional thing. That's a functional. Somebody who lives alone doesn't have an option. Doesn't have, people don't always have the opportunity to develop friendships. There was a famous magnate. I don't remember his name. I don't even know if he's still alive. But he wrote an autobiography about eight years ago. And it was uh, written up in the Globe and Mail. So somebody read to me a little piece. It's funny how things stick with you. He writes, I'm not in business to make friends. I'm in business to make money. If you need friends, buy a dog. You need two friends, buy two dogs. Something like that. I think that's a terrible statement. As he said, what's his life? His life is about his money. His career, that's it. It's all about me. You need friendship? <laughs> Find a dog. You have a friend. That's not a friend. A friend is a relationship you develop with somebody. So animals are all instinctual. Angels? Angels are the same thing. They're much smarter than us. They're much more intense than us. But all they can do is singular. That's why angels are called angels of love, or angels of awe, angels of reverence, or angels of song. Every angel has a function. A person doesn't have a singular function. A person has many functions. A person is a conglomerate of intelligence, of emotion, of functions. That's the nature of a human being. That's why Hashem created people. Now, people maybe gravitate in a certain direction, but people, as a rule, have a wide berth of opportunity. A wide birth of ability. And that's because we are given the freedom of choice. Angels don't go to heaven. They, they may live there, but they don't go there. Why? They don't earn Ganeidin. They didn't do anything to get there. So Hashem gave us something called freedom of choice. And how do you then understand the Mishnah? The Mishnah says, Mitzvah goyredes mitzvah. One mitzvah causes another mitzvah. So it's like, buy one, get one free. But then the second one's not a mitzvah anymore. If the first one was a mitzvah that I had to do and it was hard for me to do, but I did it, so then I get rewarded. I did a mitzvah. If the second one is a mitzvah that's just going to come automatically because I did the first one, then it's not a mitzvah. 
by definition, it, it ceases to be a mitzvah. I give you an example. You don't know the answer. If a person does one thing, and that one thing automatically causes something else to happen, what could they get credit for? Or vice versa. You know, the, the, when the uh, reactor melted down in Chernobyl, do you know what happened? Do you know how it happened? Somebody simply turned the wrong valve. And then, because the wrong valve got turned, something opened and something else closed, and they went crazy. So they turned another three wrong valves. And after that, there was hell. There was no, nobody was doing anything anymore. Then just the nuclear energy went crazy. It, took, it, was, it was like a force that was unleashed that no longer could be controlled. So what would you fault a person for? Let's say you're going to fault a person, and I'm sure in Russia the person probably got punished or killed for what he did. No? He died anyway. Okay, there you go. So the, but when you would fault that person, what could you fault him for? For what happened later on, or you fault him for turning, not being more careful when he turned the valve? That's all. That's all you can fault a person for. Afterwards, it's not his deed anymore. Afterwards, he, and many times people don't realize what they're going to unleash. Yeah, cause and effect. So do you get the credit for an effect? You get credit for making a cause. The truth is, it's not so simple. Sometimes you can have a zuchut, a merit, added to your name by something that you cause. I should point this out. In all fairness, it says that the mason chavshim in a mitzvah. When you die, that you're freed. You're exonerated from mitzvahs, which is not a good thing. It means that the opportunity to achieve righteousness is taken away. You can't do mitzvahs anymore. But we know that a neshama in Gan Eden, if the neshama has progeny, or people that they influence, that are doing good things, that that neshama is able to benefit from those mitzvahs being performed. Why? Because ultimately it's something they set in motion. It's called a zechut. So the zechut can bring me back a certain amount of reward. It doesn't mean to have mitzvah. So the neshama doesn't have a mitzvah. It says that mason khafshi. When you're dead, you're free. When you're dead, that opportunity is taken away from you. But something you put into effect it can actually come back to bring you nachas. Just like multi-level marketing. You can have somebody who got something going and now it doesn't work anymore. And every single month a check comes. How? Because somebody who inspired somebody who inspired somebody who inspired somebody is working now. And maybe thousands of people are working now. And since you got it all started, that's where you're getting a big check in the mail. That's not a mitzvah. That's a reward. If you would say, mitzvah gerederes schar, mitzvah brings rewards, or mitzvah gerederes zechut, mitzvah brings a merit. That's, that's where we can understand that. That's, that's the amazing thing about mitzvahs. That it's, when you, shlach lach mochal you cast your bread on the waters. You never know what you're going to end up causing. A mitzvah could be done in somebody's youth. Who knows what it can end up being years and years later. Who knows how many things we caused? And the scary thing is, who knows how many bad things we could have caused? By something, by something negative. Somebody was nasty to somebody, so that person was nasty to somebody else. And then the key, everybody kept getting nastier until down the line. Who knows what happened? Could all started just with a snarl, with a, with a good morning. What's so good about it? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I understand Mr. Gerard, Mr. as a person does a mitzvah. Then another opportunity is created, but and because he's already raised in his level, he's going to grab that second one, so that he does have benefit from the second. Okay, what you're saying is what you're saying is, is correct and true, and I want to amplify. Work on it. Let's before we get to the second opportunity that's created. The Bartanura says this is part of the world we live in. What we're going to call human nature. Human nature is that once you become accustomed to something, or once you get used to something 
then it becomes easier. It's just human nature. So, if you, your, your, your son has a new baseball glove, the first time he uses it, it's going to feel uncuffed stiff, right? So, what does he do? He uses it. If you use it, you get better at it. Anything we do, the more we do it, the better we get at it. Now, very often the things that we do and the effects that we have are not commensurate with the effort that we put in. You could have two people, one puts in a tremendous amount of effort, tries really hard, and it's not very successful because they're not good at what they do. Whereas somebody else puts in maybe as much effort or maybe less effort and is exponentially more successful at what they do. Why? Because they're a professional. They're professional. You get used to something, practice makes perfect. The more you do it, the better you get at it. Somebody asked me, I was at the conference in New York, said, you know, I listen to your lectures, how did you learn how to teach? I said, I don't know, I taught. The more you teach, the better you get at it, I hope. If I'm getting worse, please tell me. <laughs> but that's, it's, it's human nature. It's, it's trial and error. And the more you do it, if you're conscientious about what you do, if you care about what you do, if you look for feedback, and if you try to improve constantly, you're going to get better. It's human nature. So why should a person care about what they do? You can look at the here and now, or you can look at, in addition to what I'm looking at now, what is the result of this particular activity? What will it bring to me? So I could say, this is a good thing to do. Why is it a good thing to do? Because it will bring me an immediate benefit. Or I could say, this is a good thing to do because it will initiate a series of benefits. Which is more powerful? Certainly the latter. The Mishnah says, mitzvah gereres mitzvah. One mitzvah causes another. The Bartanura says, it gets easier to do mitzvahs, not harder. The more a person becomes used to doing mitzvahs, the more comfortable they feel with the mitzvahs. And the more comfortable they feel about growing in Yiddishkeit. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. It's nice that a Jew should be comfortable with his or her Judaism. It's unfortunate that Jews are uncomfortable with their Judaism. People often tell me, I would come to show, but I'm not comfortable. How, where do you go that you're comfortable the first time? The first time you go to the opera, you're comfortable? You don't, not comfortable anywhere the first time. The first time you go shopping in a new mall, you're not even comfortable. Even if you're happy, because you bought something. Comfort is something that comes out of a custom. We become used to it. So you need to work on it. You need to, it has to grow on you. The Barthelura says, this is, this is an elementary thing. If you do a mitzvah, then mitzvahs come more natural. You're not uncomfortable with mitzvahs. So mitzvah, get out of mitzvah. He said, it's a little mitzvah. Yeah, it's a little mitzvah, but that little mitzvah will lead you to another mitzvah. And another mitzvah will lead you to another mitzvah. And once mitzvahs start becoming part of your repertoire, what's, that's what you do, there's some major mitzvahs you're going to start doing. Because one leads to the other. That doesn't mean it's not your freedom of choice. It doesn't mean that you don't get credit for doing it. It means that the more you do, the more you're going to have an easier time making those decisions. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And if you're worried about effort, don't you worry. You can always turn the speed up. You can always find new areas of Yiddish and you ratchet the speed up, and all of a sudden that's where you have to find new comfort levels. And once you're comfortable there, then get uncomfortable again. But you can continue to push the envelope, to expand the border, and it all begins with one little mitzvah. Exactly. If somebody does something wrong, one Aveda leads to the other Aveda. 
You shouldn't think this is only in a good thing. Don't worry, Judaism is positive. Just do mitzvahs. You also have to not do Avedas. And if you do Avedas, then one Aveda makes you more comfortable than another Aveda. You should know that the, the Gemara says, you never lost because you can always free yourself of it. But it gets harder. There's no question, it gets harder. The Yitzhahara is very wily, very clever. He says, today do a little, little Aveda. Not a big, I wouldn't ask you to do a big Aveda. How can I do that? Do a little Aveda. But the little Aveda, once you get used to a little Aveda, it's not even an Aveda anymore. You don't even, you don't even feel guilty about it anymore. And once there's no guilt there, keep pushing the envelope. Keep doing things which you feel less and less and less guilty. There's an article I read a couple of years ago about the love affair between Jews and Chinese food. How come Jews love Chinese food so much? And the funny thing is, it's a, it's a relatively new affair because they didn't know Chinese food in Europe or in Morocco. It only could have happened when the Jews came to the United States. I would, I would say to Canada, but it happened before. Canadian Jewry is mostly post-war. American Jews were here 70, 80 years before the war already. So why did they fall in love with Chinese food? I mean, lots of cuisines. Why didn't they fall in love with, I don't know, Italian cuisine? So this guy has a very interesting... Okay, there's truth to that, but there's probably other foods that make you want to eat again too. So this is, this is, this is the supposition, this is the thesis of this article, and I, I think there has to be truth to it. Unfortunately, there are many Jews when they left Europe, they left the Yiddishkeit behind. There was this notion that Judaism cannot survive in the New Hemisphere. They say, it's partly a joke, but it's partly real, that in the, uh, in the harbor outside Ellis Island, there are a lot of filling with cement sneakers. A lot of film went overboard. We don't need this anymore. They couldn't break with the film. And then they saw freedom, and they saw the Statue of Liberty, and said, that's it, shine, enough. Kissed the film goodbye, kissed the Yiddish crowd goodbye, threw stuff overboard. Now we're going to be new people, new world, no more anti-Semitism. We're not going to have to deal with all the things that came along with the old Al-Tahim from Europe. But you know, Jewish people still feel uncomfortable. Felt uncomfortable. They came from Germany, they came from Latvia, they came from Lithuania, they came from Russia, they came from Czechoslovakia, they came from Hungary. What do you think the neighbors ate? Pork. Pork. Milk and meat. And these things made them very uncomfortable. They weren't really committed to living Jewishly, but they couldn't bring themselves to sit down with a big pork with an apple in the mouth and start cutting it. It felt so weird. It just didn't feel right. You didn't do it. So they couldn't do it. Then they discovered Chinese food. The pork was cut up in tiny little pieces. <laughs> and it was put into an egg roll. It didn't have any bad memories. It didn't remind them of the beatings. It didn't remind them of persecution. They never saw Chinese people. They never heard of Chinese anti-Semitism. And the most important thing was the pig didn't look like a pig. It was just part of an egg roll. It was part of an egg roll. So then they started eating. And also, you know, they were immigrants, and the Chinese were immigrants. Everybody thought they had horns, and the Chinese had tails, whatever it is. So kind of immigrants gravitate to immigrants. It helped along. And before you knew it, it became a new Jewish ritual that on Sunday you have to go for Chinese food. Also, there's no dairy. Oh, exactly. There's no mixing of milk and meat. There's nothing that made them uncomfortable. Why is it that in 1850 years of Christians trying to convert to Jews, you can count the Jews who converted on your hands and feet almost? How many Jews converted? But tragically, in the last 50 years, since 
the Christians started their Jews for Jay programs, they have converted tens of thousands of Jews. The number is like 75,000 Jews already. How come? How come they're so successful? Because you come to a Yid who was... Exactly. You tell him, Jesus. It's, it's like nails on the blackboard. He freaks out. Leave me alone. I don't do that. You know, <laughs> tell a story of this atheist who sent the son away to boarding school. And they were raised with no religion. Nothing. But it was a boarding school. It was a Christian boarding school. And then the kid comes home after the first semester and he's wearing a cross and he's, he's talking religious jargon. The father says, What are you crazy? What happened to you? He says, Dad, what's the problem? I thought we're atheists. He says, We are. There's only one God and that's the one we don't believe in. <laughs> so Jews were uncomfortable with it. But what happened when somebody got up and he said, he makes a bracha and he sings in Hebrew and they light candles and they, they don't call him Jesus because it's very uncomfortable to call him Yeshua. It's a nice Yiddish boy. Oh, Yeshua. Oh, sounds like my brother. Okay, that can relate to. All of a sudden, once that, that last bit of guilt and uncomfortability is gone, tragically, because Jews didn't have a Jewish upbringing, because they don't have Jewish education, because they don't know what it means to be a Jew, so they were inspired by spirituality elsewhere. The point that I'm trying to make is that when we get comfortable with certain things, one thing then leads to the next. You're absolutely right. How do you break the cycle? How do you break the cycle? So ultimately, you always have freedom of choice. But it gets harder and harder and harder to break the cycle. Just like once you have a cycle of mitzvahs going, it gets easier and easier and easier. And that's Benazai's point. You can't look at something for what it is. You can't say, it's just a mitzvah kala. It's just a little mitzvah. Because you don't know what that little mitzvah will lead to. You can't look at a little Aveda and say, it's just a little Aveda. Maybe. What will that little Aveda lead to, though? And then the question is what that leads to. You always have to evaluate each situation not for what it is itself, but what it may bring to. And that's a whole different way of looking at things. The truth is that in life we do that. In life we often are smart enough to think about what will happen as a result. When it comes to Yiddishkeit, we're looking for the easy way out. Okay, it's a little elevator. Don't worry about this one. But a little mitzvah. Forget about it. You don't have to get excited about it. Then as I says, have a rust. There has to be that same exuberance, the same electricity, the same excitement, because you don't know what it brings to this is a simple explanation. Then we come to the next idea. Shashar mitzvah mitzvah. Shashar aveda aveda. What is this adding? First of all, what does it mean? What does it mean that the reward of a mitzvah is a mitzvah? It's like not fair. You come for the reward. What do you mean a reward? You did the mitzvah. That's your reward. What are you talking about? It's like trying to tell your child if you if you be a good a good a good a good, a good child, yeah, then you'll be a good child. Child says, okay, don't I get something? No, that's the reward that you're a good child. Maybe that's your reward as a parent that the child is behaving nicely, but the child needs to be rewarded. That's a little self-serving. Hashem tells us, ah, mitzvah. Sure, the mitzvah is the reward itself. You can give me something more. Does, does the mitzvah earn me something? Isn't there this idea of schar reward? It's one of the thirteen principles of faith that Hashem actually remunerates. That there is a cause and effect of mitzvahs. So what does it mean when we say that the schar of a mitzvah is a mitzvah, and the schar of an aveda is an aveda? So the first simple way of understanding it is, we can't only look at the mitzvah itself. We have to look at how much effort you put into the mitzvah. And we don't only look at the sin, we look at how much pleasure, or how much self-gratification you derive from the sin. Namely, a person is faced now with a mitzvah. It's a little mitzvah. It's not so high on the Richter scale of mitzvahs. And it's going to require tremendous effort. And a great cost. 
So a person says, I'm a smart businessman, you know. It doesn't, the effort doesn't justify the result. It's only a little mitzvah. Forget this mitzvah. I'll, I'll, I'll put the effort into a big mitzvah, to an important mitzvah. Why bother putting so much effort into a mitzvah that doesn't really yield? Or a person comes along and says, I have this chance to have tremendous, tremendous opportunity, great fun, great pleasure, whatever it is, great excitement. But you're not really supposed to do it. Okay, it's a little later. And look at the payoff. Very few people would go and pull out a weapon and mug somebody in the street. I think any of us would do that. When you have the opportunity to make a small something, a little phone call or just a stroke of a pen somewhere, it's a little misrepresentation. Not for 10 cents. I mean, somebody say, I'm not going to steal for 10 cents. What about $100? How about $1,000? Then you will steal. How about $10,000? Then is it worth lying? Ah, well, now that you tell me, $10,000, it's not really lying, it's just, uh, it's just misrepresenting, it's, it's just a little lie. I wouldn't do a big lie, I'm not going to make somebody lose their job, I'm not going to steal some, but a little, a little thing, and they won't even know the difference. So we always rationalize in our mind, we kind of pit the size of the mitzvah and the size of the reward one against the other. So a person could say, I don't have to run for a little mitzvah because it costs too much. I'll run for the big mitzvahs. I'll put real effort in where it counts. Or, do I have to really run away from this invader? It kind of came that way. I didn't look for it. It was knocking on my door, so I opened the door. It was right there. <laughs> I could use the extra money. A little lie, a little, little shmeidre. It wasn't like a big thing. I thought it really a criminal. So the, the Mishnah says a very interesting thing, the Bartanur explains. The reward of the mitzvah is in the mitzvah itself. I mean, if you put a lot of effort into the mitzvah, even if it's a small mitzvah, it may not have a small reward. Because Hashem doesn't reward us only for the mitzvah, the object of the mitzvah. Hashem rewards us for the effort that we put into the mitzvah. So if we put more into the mitzvah, we take more out of the mitzvah. And if somebody says, it's such a little sin, and it has such a big payoff, you should know that the negative impact, the negative result, or the punishment of the Aveda, is going to be not in accordance with the object of the Aveda, but how much you, that the net benefits from the Aveda. So if you benefited greatly from the Aveda, you're going to be punished in accordance with how you benefited. Which is not necessarily the case, shall we say, in the court of law. It's possible in the court of law, they're not going to look at how much somebody benefited from doing what he did wrong, but they have to look at the criminal act in and of itself. And if it's a very small criminal act, even if somebody benefited by netting a million dollars from it, the small criminal act is not going to get punishable by jail time. You give them a fine, but you can't. The court of law, the system just doesn't allow that. It's not a question of how much O.J. Simpson stole in that, in, that, in that kidnapping case. If he took sports memorabilia or he didn't take sports... The point is he kidnapped. He held people against their will. That's a serious offense in a court of law. When you're a kidnapper, that's big trouble. So, but I didn't take anything. What did I gain from it already? <laughs> Tough luck. You're a kidnapper. Well, it's pretty ironic. If he ends up in jail for kidnapping and I gain nothing and for murder he walked, it'll be an interesting thing. You see, twist of, you know, every dog has his day. Everything... Everything falls into place eventually. But when it comes to Hashem's judgment, it's very different. Why? Because Hashem knows how much effort you put in. And He knows how hard or how easy it was. And depending on how hard and how easy, that's going to be the result of the mitzvah. Schar mitzvah, mitzvah, schar aveda, aveda. This is a simplistic way, a straightforward way of understanding the mission. In order not to hurt. 
there are, without going into details, there are certain lies which a person may, may, may do. There are certain lies which are not bad. Or certain representations of the truth or manipulation of the truth which actually could be something we're required to according to Allah. So then it wouldn't be a sin. It's not, it doesn't mean it's a little sin. It's not a sin. So for example, if your friend went and spent a lot of money on a wedding dress and you show up at the wedding and they look like a total idiot and, and you're looking at them and say, how do I look? So for you to say the truth would really be not a nice thing. Because they can't do anything about it. They already bought the dress. They spent all the money. Tell them to look fantastic. What difference does it make now? If you're going and you're looking at the dress, should I buy this? No, it's not for you. But after the fact, the Torah would tell you to be a nice person and to make them feel good and not to make them feel bad. As the Gemara says, Misha Mitchoy Mekachra, somebody who bought something bad, should you praise it? Or should you point out all its deficiencies? Should the dress have to have something good about it? So it doesn't mean you have to mamish say a full lie. Say, I'm misrepresenting. The dress looks fantastic. I didn't say it looks fantastic on you. It looks fantastic. <laughs> that would be the appropriate thing to do. So what, what, is, what is the deeper meaning of this mix? These two reasons. It's like a funny two reasons. The, the first reason is the cause. And the second reason is the mitzvah itself. So what should go first in the hierarchy and order? Should we talk about the thing itself or what it's going to cause? Let me give you an example. Somebody asks you, uh, should I go to such and such a place for a holiday? And you would say, no, because the after effect of it is going to be X, Y, and Z. And by the way, you want to have a good time either. Or, with the first thing you say, first of all, it's not a good place to go. And second of all, in addition to that not being such a good place, the end result, the after effect is going to be X, Y, and Z. Simple in the order. Which should we say first? Talk about the thing, the here and now, and then you talk about the effect. It wouldn't be logical first to talk about what something will cause and only afterwards to talk about the thing itself. So the Rebbe asks, here we have two mitzvahs, or two reasons, pardon me, for a mitzvah. One is that the mitzvah is a catalyst that causes something to happen afterwards. The other is the mitzvah has value in and of itself, even if it looks to you like a small mitzvah. It's not the object of the mitzvah, but the effort you put in. So number two should be number one. First, we should talk about the mitzvah itself, or the effort itself, that that's what Hashem really looks at. Don't look at whether it's a big mitzvah or a small mitzvah. The question is, did you make an effort now? Did you really care? Did you really try? And that's what's valuable in Hashem's eyes. And then you say, and by the way, it's not even just a little mitzvah. I mean, it is a little mitzvah, but what's it going to cause? And we have to look about not what it is now, but what it will bring afterwards. So why is the mitzvah word this so in order to understand that, we need to go back and re-examine the entire statement from a, a deeper, more mystical level. What is the organic essence of a mitzvah? What is a mitzvah? We've talked about this many times. A mitzvah literally is translated as a commandment. A commandment. Most often people think it's a good deed. A little while ago I was in a class and I was explaining this. The person said... I'm amazed. I always thought a mitzvah means to be nice to somebody. I don't know, there's 613 mitzvahs. It's true that the mitzvah of loving your fellow is the whole Torah. But there are also another 612 mitzvahs. And so that will lead you to do all the mitzvahs, to follow all the mitzvahs. It's an important mitzvah. It's a klal gadol b'tayra. But you can't say just being nice to somebody. That's the all essence of a mitzvah. So what is a mitzvah? A mitzvah, first of all, is a commandment from God. 
That's what it says. God asks you to do something. So if somebody asks you to do something, probably if they ask you to do it, it's meaningful to them. And if you really loved and cared about the person and they asked you to do it, what would the appropriate thing be for you? If somebody you really love and care about asked you, can you please do something for me? What's the appropriate thing? You do it. So it's only appropriate. Right? And hopefully if husbands care about you and you said, listen, you know, that $5,000 necklace, it's really important for me to have it. <laughs> Probably do whatever they have to do that's going to get you because you said it was really important to you, right? Or at least they'll feel guilty. When Hashem asks us to do something for Him, even though it's hard for us to understand because what does Hashem need? If He's a needy God, He's not a God. Because God is perfect. God has everything. How could God need and God needs me? Forget that He's needy. Okay, He needs big needs. He needs. What does He need me for? What does He need us for? So we don't really know the answer to that question, just by the way. It's something we believe. It's not a rational thing. We believe, because Hashem says in His favor, I need you. God's not making myself needy. I want to be needy to you. I want you to be important to me. I want your deeds to make a difference to me. We don't understand that rationally necessarily. It's not a logical thing. It's a, it's a, it's a faith thing. It's what religion is based on. Predicated on this idea that God makes himself needy. That God wants us to fulfill needs for him. So he asks us to do something for him. So if we're, if we're only a mensch, if we're only a decent person, Hashem asks us to do something, we're going to do it. Why? Why? Because God gave us a whole life. What do we pay for life? Absolutely nothing. Baruch Hashem, everybody has eyes that work. Everybody can hear. Everybody is mobile. Everybody is, Baruch Hashem, in somewhat state of, of decent health. They can come out to a class. They can move around. Baruch Hashem. And what do we pay for it? What did God charge us for it? Absolutely nothing. If somebody would give you 5% of what God gives you, you wouldn't be able to stop saying thank you. You wouldn't be able to do enough for that person. So shouldn't we be decency? God does everything. He's asking us to do something back for him. It, it's so absurd. And people say, do it, I'm too busy. You're too busy. That doesn't make any sense. Imagine somebody sends you to school and pays you to board and got you in and did everything for you and they come along and say, I'm too busy. And they tell a story of a doctor who opened up and nobody was coming to him. And he met a friend of his, and the friend said, he says, I don't know what to do. I put out a shingle. A new doctor in town. Nobody comes. Nobody wants to go to a new doctor. They say, learn on somebody else. So he says, listen, the next time somebody calls you, tell them that you have no room for two weeks. You're so booked. The word will get out. And he started to do that. Finally, somebody called. He was desperate. Sorry, I can't see you for two weeks. Wow, two weeks. He must have so many patients. And before you knew it, the word gets out. And six months later, his practice is full. And then that friend who gave him the advice calls up. And he says, can I speak to my friend, the doctor? Answer comes back. He says, he's busy. They only see you in two weeks. <laughs> he says, remind him I gave him that idea. <laughs> Son gives you a whole life. Too busy. Sorry, God, I'm busy. It really doesn't make sense. So that's the first notion of a mitzvah being it's a command. It's not even a, it's a, it's a request. It's really a command. God said, do it. Only he gives us the opportunity to say no if we want a command that you can deny. And then comes the next level. So the next level afterwards, after doing the mitzvah itself as a commandment, the mitzvah also represents a connection. 
that Hashem gives us the opportunity to be connected to Him. How? By being meaningful in His life. How can you be meaningful in somebody's life? When you do things for them that they need, then you become meaningful in their life. So if you wanted to have a relationship with a specific person, and you found out a need that they had, and you filled that need, that would be a shoo-in, to have a relationship. Because now all of a sudden, they had a need, you fulfilled the need. And obey them. Any time you're there for somebody, when somebody really needs something, automatically there's a connection that's forged. There could be a famous person, there's no time for anybody. Very busy, very powerful, and at a particular time they needed something very badly, and only you were able to help. And you helped. Don't you think that afterwards they take your call? Not necessarily. That's because people are disgusting. <laughs> but if somebody was a mensch, so if somebody, we're talking about God over here. So if God asks us to do something for him, then doing it is going to result in a connection. Which is the meaning that in Hebrew, the word mitzvah, which means commandment, also is an idiom of the word tzavet, word tzavta, which means connected. Tzivu is a commandment. But a tzivu also means a connection. So for example, next time you fly to Israel and Elal, you'll realize that the crew is called a tzavet. Why are they called a tzavet? The stewards and stewardesses are called a tzavet because they're all connected by a common purpose. The common purpose is, supposedly, to serve you and make your trip as comfortable as possible. In the last few years, Allah actually started to do that. <laughs> so it's a tzavet. Tzavet means they work together. A team. A tzavet then, or a tzavta, is something that connects us to Hashem. Why does one mitzvah cause another mitzvah in its train? Because a mitzvah, because it connects us to Hashem, it makes us more spiritual, closer to God. Because it makes us more spiritual and closer to God, that's why in addition to the literal concept, and I emphasize literal, that one deed automatically makes other deeds easier. Other similar deeds either because you became used to it. In addition to this, when a person is in a situation where they do a mitzvah, meaning they become closer to Hashem, they cultivate a level of spirituality, a, a certain sensitivity for holiness. So how do you think they're going to look at a mitzvah next time after you did one mitzvah? How do you think they're going to look at a mitzvah? They're going to have to look at the mitzvah in a little bit more refined way. Maybe a tiny iota. But every mitzvah, the more mitzvahs you do, the more refined you do. The more sensitive you become. If you become more sensitive to something, you appreciate something more. It deepens your, 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 your connection to it. So then other mitzvahs will come easier. In fact, they'll start to look for other mitzvahs. Because now you appreciate what a mitzvah is. And that's the meaning of mitzvah gedaris mitzvah. Why does one mitzvah really cause another mitzvah? Not in a literal way, just because when you do something, it makes it easier to do other things like that. Why does one mitzvah have the power to cause another mitzvah? And the explanation, the continued explanation then. You know why this is so? Shitzar mitzvah mitzvah. Because you know what the greatest reward of a mitzvah could be? Mitzvah meaning commandment. What's the scar, the reward of a commandment? Mitzvah meaning connection the greatest reward is to have that connection so imagine there was somebody that you were dying to have a relationship with you wanted so badly to be able to be in touch with this person and your lucky moment came the person needed something from you and because they needed something they instructed you please do X, Y, and Z and you followed through and did X, Y, and Z what's your reward? now you have the relationship you always covered that relationship because you fulfilled the instructions you now have the relationship I don't blame them. 
So the word mitzvah actually it's a, it looks exactly the same, but it means two different things. Sheschar mitzvah, mitzvah. The reward of a mitzvah, a commandment, is a connection. This is based on the teachings of the Shalah, the Magad of the Zich, and Chassidus talks a lot about this. The Shechar Aveda, the reward of an Aveda, an Aveda, you know what a sin really is? A sin is a blockage. A sin is a wall that separates. A sin is a barrier between us and God. So the more a person does sins, the more they block their spiritual sensitivity, the more they drive a wedge between their relationships. Let's imagine that there's two people, and somebody did something not nice to the other. What does it automatically do with these two people that used to have a really good relationship? Puts the chill, right? It impregnates a chill into that relationship. Okay, now I have a chilled relationship. So what does the other one do, usually back? They act chilly now. So what does the chilliness usually do then? It... it, it, it you get further and further and further. And you get very distant. All of a sudden, the more you keep putting in these distances, the further apart they get. An Aveda, the notion of an Aveda is something that causes a barrier between us and God. This person that you really love, the person who really loves you, asks you, please don't do that. It really, really bothers me. And you decided, ha, I'll just do it anyway. So what happens now? So now, our relationship is that much worse. And then usually the other one does something bad back. You know, everybody's married, right? I do this, I do that, I do this. One thing leads to the next, all of a sudden we're in a big fight. From, from a stupid little thing. What do you have to be? More sensitive about the little things. You wouldn't offend the spouse with the little things. Or they wouldn't offend you with the little things. It wouldn't escalate. That's what the Mishnah says. Havelots. Run away from an Aveda. Why should you run away from it? Because every Aveda, can't just look at what the Aveda is. The Aveda brings you to another Aveda. Why does one Aveda bring you to another Aveda? Because the nature of an Aveda is a separation from you and God. So once you drive a wedge between you and God, it just gets worse. So the reason that there's this catalyst, it's not the catalyst in the typical sense only. There's a deeper kind of idea. And that deeper idea is based on the, the second statement of Schar Mitzvah Mitzvah Schar Aveda Aveda. Leba points out that the reward of a mitzvah is not like the reward of other things that we do. Because let's take, for example, somebody who has a job. Whatever your job might be. If you do your job, what's the reward for the job? A paycheck, hopefully. If you happen to have the good fortune of living in China, you might get a cup of rice. That will be your paycheck. That's why things are very cheap when they come from China. And if you live in Canada, your paycheck, hopefully, will be a little bit above minimum wage. Does it really commensurate with what you did? Yes or no? I mean, yes and no. A bigger professional will get paid more, but depends also on where you live, what the ex- norm is, what the, what the accepted practice is. It certainly has nothing to do. It's not like when you did your job, you actually created the money. It's, it's, it's a cause and effect, but a cause and effect are not natural causes and effect. That's a different kind of cause and effect. If you eat healthy, you probably will be healthy. If you pay a check to the health club, Every month. Will you be in better shape? Because you joined the health club? Of course not. But a lot of people do that. Why? Because somewhere in the head they think, at least if I'm joining the health club, probably I'll go there. I feel like I'm doing something about my health. I'm writing a check. Nobody likes to write a check. So that's why the health clubs have more members than they could ever handle. But they bank on human nature. If human nature would ever change, they would all go out of business. Why? Because 500 people would show up for 50 in their exercise machines. So they have 500 people paying. And that's why actually you get, you get more than you bargain for. You're really getting more than what it's worth. 
the only way you're able to get more than what it's worth is because <laughs> all these silly people who are paying are not using it. Human nature, it's a fact. So, if they do work out, what's the payoff? You're going to be healthier. Why? Because you worked out. You ate healthier, you're going to be healthier because you worked out. How about if you eat really unhealthy foods? What's the punishment? Your body's going to deteriorate. Why? It's like somebody wagging a finger. If you eat that, I'll deteriorate your body. No. It's, it's an organic thing. It's natural. One necessarily, it's the real cause and effect. So mitzvahs are the same way. Mitzvahs are not Hashem says, if you do a mitzvah, ah, you did a mitzvah, I'll, I'll pay you back. No, actually, the reward of the mitzvah, you create all by yourself. So what is Ganadin made out of? It's made out of your deeds. So will I go to heaven? If you make yourself a heaven, you go there. If you don't take time to make yourself a heaven, don't expect to have a heaven. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It's a cause and effect. It's a schar and it's an anish. Somebody does a sin. He says, I've got to overlook it. I've got to overlook it. You smoke cigarettes. You have uh, bad lungs. It's the way it goes. It's, it's, it's cause and effect. It's natural. And that's what we have to look at a mitzvah. So when it comes to a mitzvah, it's, okay, it's a little mitzvah, whatever. Maybe God will be nice to me this time. It won't be ineffective. What does that mean? There's a nature. There's a law, a system God put in place. Every mitzvah brings you closer to Hashem. Because that's what a mitzvah is. Every Aveda brings you further away from Hashem. Because that's what an Aveda is. And Benazai hoped, and continues to hope, that when we'll sit and learn his mission, 2,000 years later, we'll be inspired to run after the little mitzvahs and to run away from even the small Avedas.